It says go live instead of record. Is that? Okay. Okay. Sorry about that. No problem. I use touch screen at work, and uh, some of my fingers don't work. You get them callousy, or you know they're rough. And, so I thought it was me. <clears throat> okay, First Kings chapter ten, and we'll read the first thirteen verses. And this is going to be a series we introduced to you last week. So let's read at First Kings chapter ten, verse one. And when the queen of Sheba heard the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to prove him with hard questions. And she came to Jerusalem with a very great train with camels that bear spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she was come to Solomon, she communed with him of all that was in her heart. And Solomon told her all her questions. There was not anything hid from the king which he told her not. And the queen of Sheba had seen, when the queen of Sheba had seen all Solomon's wisdom in the house that he had built, and the meat of his table, and the sitting of his servants, and the attendance of his ministers, and their apparel, and his cupbearers, and his ascent by which he went up into the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. And she said unto the king, It was a true report that I heard in mine own land of thy acts and of thy wisdom. Howbeit I believed not the words until I came and mine eyes had seen it, and behold the half was not told me. Thy wisdom and prosperity exceedeth the fame which I heard. Happy are thy men, happy are these thy servants which stand continually before thee and that hear thy wisdom. Blessed be the Lord thy God which delighteth in thee to set thee on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord had loved Israel forever, therefore made he thee king to do judgment and justice. And she gave the king an hundred and twenty talents of gold and of spices, very great store, and precious stones. There came no more such abundance of spices as these, which the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. And the navy also of Hiram that brought gold from Ophir, brought in from Ophir great plenty of almond trees and precious stones." And the king made of the almond trees pillars for the house of the Lord and for the king's house, harps also and psalteries for singers. There came no such almond trees nor were seen unto this day. And King Solomon gave unto the queen of Sheba all her desire, whatsoever she asked, beside that which Solomon gave her of his royal own country, of his royal bounty, I'm sorry. So she turned and went to her own country she and her servants. And our title again is Solomon and the Queen. And in this we told you last week that what we want you to see and visualize here as we proceed through this is the similitudes here between the king and the queen, but more greatly between Christ and sinners. And we introduced to you that this is similitudes that we're going to be talking about and looking at. And we do this on the basis of even what the Lord himself said about how that the queen of Sheba would rise up against the generation that he lived in and judge it and condemn it because she came to hear the wisdom of Solomon but he inferred that they were disregarding him and his statement was, 
a greater than Solomon is here. So the Lord by that statement was making a comparison there of himself and Solomon. And that's what we're referring to in this series of messages. We gave you the scripture in Hosea last week about similitudes and what that is. And we want to develop that a little bit more today in our introduction before we continue where we left off. What are similitudes again? And I want to impress this upon you and that you'll maintain this definition as we go through here. Similitudes. This is what Bunyan used in Pilgrim's Progress and in his writings, the Holy War, which we're now studying in Sunday school. Then the definition of a similitude, again, key word in there, similar, okay? We know what that means. So a similitude means to be like, or it is a likeness. It is, again, as I told you last week, a resemblance of some sort. It may be in nature, in appearance, in quality, in virtue, in character, you know, and other things as well. So when Jesus said, a greater than Solomon is here, he was making, or he made a statement of similitude because he was comparing in some ways Solomon and himself. Usually when we speak in these manners or preach and use these things, we say, you know, Christ is seen in the scripture in types and shadows and symbols and that. And that's true, but that's all comprehensive under similitudes in that regard. Well, let's pause right there with the definition and ask a question that I didn't ask last week, but certainly is important. Why do we use similitudes? And we mentioned, and I read to you some things last week, examples in the Old Testament of similitudes and of the metaphors that are used. And of course, the Bible is a book of metaphors. Christ used metaphors. Uh, Christ used parables, again, which are stories that were inclusive of metaphors. The Bible has illustrations, all of these things overlapping. Why do we use such things in the teaching and preaching of God's Word or in our secular lives when it comes to learning, teaching, and understanding? Think about that for a moment. Why do we use things similar why do we compare things, okay, in teaching or trying to get a point or a lesson across? Well, if you think about that for just a few moments, you answer it yourself because you realize then that the metaphors, the parables, the similitudes, the likenesses and all are all explanations and descriptions and details designed to make our learning easier. That's why they're used. It's not an accident they're in the Bible. I mean, the Lord, the parables, the things we covered last week, Old Testament and New, uh, the metaphors Paul uses and things like that. I mean, those are designed. And of course, the ultimate designer is the Holy Spirit in the ones that He has chosen to give us in the Bible to help us to understand. Jesus in the parables spoke of things that secularly those in his audience knew in order to teach something they didn't know, a spiritual lesson. 
And that, of course, is where many did not understand because, again, he was taking something that everybody did understand in a secular human sense, but not everybody could understand the spiritual meaning without the Holy Spirit because unless you've been born again, those things are hidden from the soulish lost sinner. Let me make another comment or two here that, again, uh, hopefully will help us and you'll see the purpose of this and why it's in the Bible and even why we do it. How do you learn what you don't know except by and through what you do know? That's exactly how we learn, is it not? We take what we do know and use that to add to it. So we take certain absolutes, certain facts, certain realities, things that we have either proved or others have proved or uh, we have experienced and know to be true and upon that foundation and that basis then we try, prove, and examine other things. In other words, new knowledge can only be acquired or understood based on the knowledge that you already possess. That's why education is important. It's a foundation for learning. And let's use the illustration of children. We all were children and little children come into the world and it's a bank, a blank piece of paper. Their minds, their brains. It's a blank chalkboard, isn't it? There's nothing there. They don't understand. Nothing. No concepts, no principles, nothing there. So they have to be taught. Why do we start teaching children colors, numbers, and the alphabet? Because that's the foundation to learn anything, isn't it? I mean, you know, if you tell a two-year-old, you know, uh, try to get them to explain what a certain color is, they're lost. They don't, they don't know the concept, do they, of, of colors and what makes colors and light and all that. So we start with very basic things. And just like the little blocks that children, I used to, you know, you play with, we had blocks, little, uh, little blocks, they would have the alphabet on them. They'd have numbers on the side. They'd have colors on the side. You could learn all three of those things just by the little blocks and stacking them up in an order or things like that. But it created a foundation. And based on that, then you could begin to learn other things. So, likewise, similitudes. And we do this all the time in the secular world. Well, no. If we tell somebody something and, we, and they don't know or understand what we're talking about, we'll say, well, it's like such and such and such. What? what do we do? We give them a, and this is our definition I want you to think of throughout this series, a comparative resemblance of something they did know. That's what Jesus did in the parables. That's what a similitude is. A comparative resemblance. You can't compare something if you don't have something to compare it with. You're already a loss for what you're being told that you don't know. But if you have something you do know to compare it to, then you can look at the similarities 
as well as the differences. And guess what? That's how you learn. That's how we learn. Of course, Jesus was the master teacher. And as a teacher, as a preacher, you must be able to communicate to your audience. Jesus did this in the most eloquent fashion there ever was. God has communicated through His people with the prophets, through the illustrations that we read to you last week in similitudes. We're going to look at some more today once I get through with this introduction here of emphasis. And then we'll go on to some New Testament things. But it was a comparative resemblance. Let me give you a couple other things that may help you on this. In the Bible, 107 times, Old Testament and New Testament, you may read this word, likewise. That's exactly what we're talking about. That word has no meaning except it is a comparative, comparative resemblance of something. Just think about that for a moment. Let, the, let this soak in. How many times have you read in the Bible a statement is made, Old Testament or New, doesn't matter, and then that word will be, so likewise, you know, okay, trying to teach or present something unknown by what? Something that's already been presented and known. And then also, we read a few times in the Bible, on this wise, you know, it says in the Gospels, on this wise was Jesus born. You know, well, from what? The prophecies in this manner, in this way, similarly, is the word that we use. So these are adjectives and adverbs that help us understand, right? And that's what in the English language adjectives and adverbs do. They are descriptive. They complement. They explain things so that we can understand it better. If you just throw the fact out there in somebody's face that doesn't know or have anything to compare it to, you might as well hit them in the head with a hammer. They're not any better off except they got a headache. They don't understand. But when you give a similitude, a similarity, a comparative resemblance, then things begin to make sense. Let's look at the few verses of the usage of the word similar or similitude uh, in the singular sense. As I told you last week, there's only one plural, and that's uh, in Hosea that we looked at last week <clears throat> in the book of Hosea 12 and 10. But uh, there's a few singular that may help you here at the start. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 16. We'll start back here and look at these chronologically. It says here in chapter 4, verse 16 of Deuteronomy, Moses is uh, speaking here concerning idolatry, and he says, Lest you corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image, the similitude of any figure, the likeness of male or female. So he's talking about what the Ten Commandments act strictly forbid, that is, creating an image, the similitude. Now, Let's just pause there again and make an emphasis. Can a sculpture create something that has any meaning whatsoever if he didn't have a brain or anything? No. Everything that a sculpture sculpts or anything that a painter paints is based upon figures or knowledge of things he has in his head. Nobody has ever made an idol of a fish that has never seen a fish. 
Nobody ever made an idol or a totem pole or anything, any of those things, except based on something that was real, right? And so when they do it, here you have a similitude or a likeness or an image of something else. But guess what? One's alive and breathing, the other's just a piece of wood or stone or rock or something else. You see what it is. So there's the definition within itself. I hope that helps you. Let's look over to Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter four and verse three to another reference there. Second Chronicles four and I believe it's verse three. Yes. Just get out of First Chronicles and get in Second Chronicles will be all right. Second Chronicles chapter four and verse three. And this is speaking here of an altar and idol that was made just like what we read about that was not to be made. And it says, and under it was this <clears throat> let me get this right. This is Solomon building the temple and the oxen that was in it. This was not an idol. The previous reference was an idol. And it says in verse 3, Under it was the similitude of oxen which did compass it round about, ten and a cubit, compassing the sea round about. Two rows of oxen were cast, and it was cast. So again, they weren't real oxen. They weren't living and breathing, but looking at them, they were in the likeness and the comparative resemblance so that you would look at it and you wouldn't think it was a horse. You would recognize it was an oxen. Thus, again, assemble to. Let's jump to the Psalms and we'll move a little faster now that you're catching on I trust to what we're talking about. Psalms 106 and verse 20. Psalms 106 and verse 20. Thus they changed their glory into the similitude of an ox that eateth grass. And this is in reference to the children of Israel making the golden calf if you look the previous verse, verse 19. Again, they didn't make it out of something out of their imagination. They made it out of something that they knew. And if you looked at it, although it was gold and cattle aren't gold, it had the comparative resemblance of a real calf, except this one was different in substance and, of course, life and non-life being the comparison. One more in Psalms 144 and verse 12 that our sons may be as plants grown up in their youth, that our daughters may be as cornerstones polished after the similitude of a palace. It's speaking of people there. Metaphors are being used, but the similitude is that the stones are polished. That's like smooth marble, you know, or some other precious stone. Uh, granite can be rough, but it can be polished like glass, can it? There's your similitude again. Okay, uh, a couple of more uh, while we're on this. Let's just do these and we'll have these out of the way and you'll know what they are, shall we? Let's look at the book of Daniel chapter 10 and verse 16. What we're doing is very elementary, very foundational, but if you grasp this point, the rest comes very easy. It says in verse 16, And behold, one like the similitude of the sons of men touched my lips, 
Then I opened my mouth and spake and said unto him that stood before me, O my Lord, by the vision my sorrows are turned upon me and I have retained no strength. Okay, like the similitude of the sons of men. What's that telling us? It's not an extraterrestrial. It's not an animal. It's not a bird. It's not a fish. It's like a human being. This angel had the comparative resemblance of another human being, a man. That's a similitude. Very simple. Let's jump to the New Testament, shall we? And look at some usages there. Paul uh, speaking in, uh, to the Romans in that epistle, chapter 5 and verse 14 of Romans. We read these words. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who, of the, who is the figure of him that was to come. It was not after the comparative resemblance of Adam's sin because Adam's sin was a little different than you and I's sin. What do we have in common with Adam's sin? We sinned, he sinned, it's still the same sin. But we weren't without sin when we sinned, were we? We are with sin when we sin. And so again, a similitude. You see how that plays out in the Scripture? Very clear. Hebrews chapter 7, and Hebrews, of course, is a book of similitudes between the law and grace and many of the things under the Mosaic law and grace. Chapter 7 verse 15 referring to Melchizedek and it is yet far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek there ariseth another priest and of course that is Christ. So there's the similitude between the high priest Melchizedek and our high priest Christ, just like we're going to be making between Solomon and Christ. And finally, the last one at the end of the book of Hebrews, James chapter 3 and verse 9. James chapter 3 and verse 9. Therewith bless we God, even the Father. Therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. And that is one verse of Scripture I gave to you last time was that God made man what? In His likeness, in His image, that is a similitude in that regard. Can I give you just one before we launch off again concerning what Christ said? That it, Again, to show you, just show you that Christ used similitudes. In fact, this is the intro into John 3.16. Speaking to Nicodemus in verse 14, Christ says, Even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, must the Son of Man be lifted up. Why do preachers preach like they do using similitudes and do what I'm fixing to do in the 10th chapter of 1 Kings? Because that's the way the Master taught using parables, similitudes, comparisons. He spoke to them of something they already knew about, and what was he telling them? Something they didn't know about. They knew about Moses lifting up that brazen serpent that was to look upon was to be healed from the punishment and chastisement of their sin. And Jesus is making that same illustration that even so must the Son of Man be lived. Why? that those who look to the cross, look to Christ, may be delivered from their sin. Symbol too. Symbol too. That's what it is.
All right, let's continue on with where we left off last week, and we were looking at the prophets and some of those similitudes. And uh, we finished with Jeremiah 18 last week about going down to the Potiphar's house. Again, a similitude full of metaphors. Let's look today at the book of Amos. The book of Amos chapter 8 is where we want to go to. And again, this should be in your mind now and you should be easy should be very easy as we read these to recognize that it is a similitude and you can look at the detail and see the metaphors and the things that are used there. Chapter 8 of Amos verse 1, Thus hath the Lord showed unto me, and behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what seest thou? And I said, A basket of summer fruit. The Lord said unto me, The end is come upon my people of Israel. I will not again pass by them anymore. He just used summer fruit as a similitude of his people Israel. How do you do that? Well, you've got to think a little bit. If you see a basket of summer fruit, it's very beautiful if it's picked in its right time, isn't it? And it's very beneficial in its right time, right? But a basket of summer fruit does not stay in good shape very long, depending on the conditions it's in, does it? And if you just take a basket of summer fruit and set it out in the sun for about a week, you won't want to eat it, you'll want to pass by it as far away from it as you can, probably because it gets rotten, doesn't it? Similitude right here through the prophet Amos. I'm no longer going to pass by them like a basket of rotten summer fruit, you know, uh, when it rots. It has a state that it's acceptable and good in, and there's a state when it's unacceptable. So that's what was shown to Amos there in that. Now, there's a marvelous example in Ezekiel 16 that I can only point you to and read a little bit of because it is way too long. <laughs> but it is beautiful. I'll encourage you to read it in your own time, and when I get there, you may be already familiar with it. But the chapter 16 of Ezekiel has 63 verses in it to teach this similitude. And it is comparing the Lord and Israel as a baby when it is absolutely newborn. And until this baby, which happens to be a girl, grows up into maidenhood and the Lord takes her as his bride and then she goes into harlotry. So it's kind of along the lines of Hosea. But let's just look at some of it. I'll point a few things out, skip through some of this, and you read it on your own again. I hope it's familiar with you. Uh, at the very beginning, he says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. Well, Jerusalem is a, is a uh, metaphor there for Israel, the people, not the city. God didn't hate the city, per se. It was His choice city. He put His name there in Jerusalem. But again, Jerusalem was the centerpiece or the capital of the Jewish people, even as it is today. Alright, look at this. And say, Thus saith the Lord God unto Jerusalem, Thy birth and thy nativity is the land of Canaan. Thy father was an Amorite, thy mother an Hittite, 
As for thy nativity, in the day thou wast born, thy navel was not cut, neither was thou washed in water to supple thee. Thou wast not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. None I pitied thee to do any of these unto thee, to have compassion upon thee, but thou wast cast out in the open field to the loathing of thy person in the day that thou wast born. Okay, so what's he saying here? He's saying, you was a nobody. <laughs> I mean, you were nothing, nobody. You had nothing in your ancestry to brag about. Well, do we? No. Uh, who was our father? Adam. Who was our mother? Eve. What did they do? What do we have to brag about? We're their children. We're their descendants. So the Lord is saying here, there was nothing in you that I should respect or be attracted or drawn to you. I mean, this is a very sad situation, isn't it? You think about, you know, you used to read about people leaving babies on doorsteps. I wish they still did. That would mean they're being born. Now, we've skipped that. We, you know, abortion has taken over, right? So, anyway. But this child was born and cast out into an open field. Just thrown away like a piece of garbage. And then verse 6, When I passed by thee and saw thee polluted in thine own blood, I said unto thee, When thou wast in thy blood lived. Yea, I said unto thee, when thou was in thy blood, lived. And then all we read about is what the Lord did to them and for them. They were that child that nobody else, kind of like the, uh, you know, uh, the good Samaritan when that guy was beaten up. Everybody passed by and wouldn't do nothing. Who, who would do that to a child out there? Well, we abort them, you know, so people will do those things and have done those things. But the Lord is saying here, you were nothing and I had compassion on you. And I nurtured you, and, and this is just so beautiful, it's hard not to preach it, but just look at the I word after verse 7, you know. I mean, I have caused thee to multiply as the bud of field. Thou hast increased, wax and great, thou art come to excellent ornaments, thy breasts are fashioned, thy hair is grown, whereas thou wast naked and bare. Everything you are is because of me, is what he's saying. Look at the eye. When I passed by thee, looked upon thee, but home the time was loved. I spread my skirt over thee. I covered thy nakedness. I swear unto thee. I entered into covenant with thee. I washed thee with water. I washed away thy blood from thee. I anointed thee with oil. I clothed thee. I, yeah, yeah, you got that? Grace, 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 grace. And then, of course, his betrothed goes into hoarding. Israel goes into spiritual adultery in forsaking the God that has done everything for them. So again, marvelous, marvelous similitude there in that. Let's run, jump to the New Testament. I told you last week we'd have some New Testaments. We're very clear. I wanted to lay the foundation in the old first. But let's go to the book of Hebrews. As I mentioned a while ago, Hebrews has all kinds of similitudes from the Old Testament. We're going to look at chapter 8 here. And this is a similitude of the Aaronic priesthood under the Mosaic law and Christ and his high priestly office. Hebrews 8 verse 1. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum or conclusion. We have such a high priest. So see this even started before chapter 8. Okay. Who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Of course that's Christ, isn't it? He is a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. We're speaking in a similitude, right? 
because Moses was instructed to build a tabernacle, right? And Moses built it according to what he was commanded on the mount. It was erected and pitched. It was taken down when God said take it down and move. They put it back up when God said stay here and put it up. Moses and men made it, didn't they? He's already speaking in a similitude that Christ is a minister of a sanctuary not made with hands, not set up here on the earth, not the portable tabernacle, not the temple that Solomon built, but the true tabernacle. He goes on. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifice. Wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. You see, the whole thing is a comparative resemblance. The high priests in the Old Testament, what do they do? What was their ministry? To offer gifts and sacrifices. Intercession, right? On behalf of the people. Wherefore, here's the comparison. It is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. Our high priest compared to the old high priest. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve under the example and, get this, shadow of heavenly things. Again, when we say there are types and shadows of things, right here it is, a shadow. Okay? And let's just pause there. I mentioned the word, what is a shadow? It is, if you stand out in the sun, you're going to cast a shadow. Anything in sunlight has a shadow, right? What is a shadow? It is a likeness of whatever the sun's shining on. If it's shining on you and you get lined up right, your shadow is going to look like what? A human being. It's going to take a human form, isn't it? A tree's not going to look like a man unless it's very uniquely shaped, right? Trees, shadows look like trees. Dog shadows look like dogs. People shadows look like people. It's a similitude. It's a similitude. It is a shadow of. And again, if you latch onto this concept that I'm presenting here to you, I mean, you'll be overwhelmed with how much it's in the Bible. A shadow of heavenly things. How do we know of heavenly things? Because the shadow that we know of earthly things. We're taught them in an earthly manner in order to comprehend heavenly truth. Parables, similitudes. As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for see, saith he, thou that make all things according to the pattern showed thee in the mount, but now hath he, Christ, obtained a more excellent ministry. Okay, what do we got? We're comparing the Old Testament priest and priesthood to that of Christ, which is more excellent. Remember the theme of the book of Hebrews is one word, better. By how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. And it was not that the first covenant was worthless. It was incomplete. Incomplete. 
It was good, but there was something better coming. Christ didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. To develop, to build upon what was already there. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. Do you see the similitude in that verse? We've got the similitude of the priests and their functions and their ministry, comparative resemblance, good, better in Christ. And then in this last verse, He's speaking of putting the laws in their mind. When God gave the law to Moses on the mount, where did he put it? He wrote it, it says, with his finger on tablets of stone. Right? That's the old covenant. Where's the new covenant? What's this new covenant here? I will put my laws into their minds and write it in their hearts. What a similitude. What a way. And the metaphors used. God writing, not on stone, but in the mind and in the heart. Not by the man Moses, but by the man Christ. Not an old covenant, a new covenant. Not under works of the law, but under grace. I mean, this similitude's big. Have you got that impression yet? I mean, this is a big thing to see and recognize and praise God for in Scripture. Alright, let's before we close here, let me give you another one or two. And let's go back. I'm going to go back to Colossians here, and then we'll we'll come back to Hebrews for our final one. In uh, Colossians chapter one, chapter two. Colossians chapter two, verse sixteen and seventeen. Colossians 2, 16, 17. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath day, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Under the Mosaic law, there was all kinds, weren't there, of things about meat and drink, holy days, Sabbath days, new moons, different things that were done at certain times, right? That was all under the Mosaic law. What does verse 17 say? Those things were but a shadow. Not the real thing, but a what? A resemblance, comparative resemblance of that which was to come. And if you get nothing else today, get this point. Since shadow has come up again, think about it. How much can you tell about somebody by looking at their shadow if you had never seen it? I'll answer it for you. Very little. Depending on the shadow. Depending on what time of day it is, 
you may think this person is a giant, nine feet tall, as tall as Goliath. But they may be five foot tall and be casting a big shadow because, as you know, it depends on where the sun's at. Right? Or likewise, you may think they're a midget and they could be seven feet tall if it's noonday. Right? You may not be able to tell depending on how they're standing if they're male or female. You won't know by that shadow what color their hair is. You won't know by that shadow what color their eyes is. You won't know by that shadow if they've got all their limbs. You certainly won't know anything about their internal organs looking at that shadow. Right? I mean, it is so obscure, so vague. You can tell what it is, but the details simply aren't there to be seen. No matter how hard you look or how hard you serve. Folks, that's exactly what the people of the Old Testament were dealing with. Those things, those similitudes, those things of the Mosaic Law, those sacrifices, all those things in teaching, they were looking at shadows, and there's only so much you can tell about a shadow. But guess what happens if you trace a shadow? If you start at the furthermost edge of a shadow, even if it goes 100 feet out there in the highway, and you follow it back, where's it going to bring you to? The source that's cast in the shadow. All of this stuff in the Old Testament was bringing us and pointing us to what we were talking about in Sunday school, to one person, Christ. To one lesson, grace and redemption. And this is what the writers of the New Testament were developing. And this is what this says. They were a shadow of things to come. The law was good. The shadow was good. But guess what? There's something better and that's what's casting the shadow. But God in His wisdom gave the shadow before He gave the real thing. The law was our schoolmaster, shadow, to bring us to Christ. Alright, let's get get this one. I'm not going to turn there and read this. But think of the Scripture, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. For Christ, our Passover is sacrificed for us. You got that similitude? I've preached that in this church. Christ, our Passover. Why did God institute the Passover? Not, not just to be something convenient, not just to shed innocent blood. It is a picture. It is a representation. It is a comparative resemblance of what? Christ who by and through His blood would atone for the sins of His people. Alright, let's go back to Hebrews and we'll wrap this up. Hebrews chapter 9. Read with me at verse 8. We'll read a few here and wrap this up today. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 8, The Holy Ghost, thus this signifying, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. And we don't have time to go into detail, but you know that nobody could go in there but the high priest on the day of atonement. Which was a figure. Okay, we talk about figures. Most people refer to figures in a wrong way, in an ugly way, or a lustful way. But a figure, again, is something resemblance or descriptive of something, right? Or someone. For a figure, or a likeness, or a type, or a resemblance for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. Something better's coming, right? But Christ, and here is that, 
being come, being come and high priest of, excuse me, good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. And what was the tabernacle back there in the Old Testament? Well, it was handmade, wasn't it? It's like a house, except it was made of curtains. But Solomon made, instead of a tabernacle, a temple, right? I mean, and it was extravagant, but it was man-made, handcrafted, right? What was the tabernacle of our high priest? Fleshly body. Wasn't it? Not a building. God gave him a body. It was God in human flesh. As the Shekinah glory was in the tabernacle in the wilderness, God was enrobed in human flesh in the incarnation and virgin birth, right? I mean, you got it? Look at the symbol too. That building, the new building. Neither by the blood of bulls and goats, but by his own blood. He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. All kinds of comparisons there. For if the blood of bulls and goats and of the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. A similitude of our great high priest compared to and resembling the priesthood under the Old Testament. So again, we're looking at Christ in types, in shadows, in figures, in objects, in persons, in events and things like this. And again, it's like that 3D picture we talked about last week. Once you see it, you can see it easily and you can see it often in Scripture. And you will be to the point that when the name of Solomon pops up on the page of your Bible, or you think of Solomon, or somebody mentions Solomon, you know what you'll automatically think of? The scripture I read to you last week, Matthew 12, 42. A greater than Solomon came. Solomon was great, but Solomon was only a shadow of the greater that was to come. That will be our approach in these messages. God bless this to your hearing today.